following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, I was... Um... I occasionally visit some, some online forums. They usually have something to do with college sports, uh, maybe the Royals. This time of year, I'll kind of peruse into that just a little bit. As many of you might guess, a lot of what I will jump into when it comes to some online forums at times has to do with my outdoor interests. I love to hunt, like to fish, like to do those sorts of things. And I just happened to be on one of those outdoor type forums, and somebody asked for some advice from, I mean, it's a group of several hundred people from all around the country and some beyond the country who take part in this. And um, somebody asked for some advice about some, about some deer blinds, like, like what type of deer blinds to use, so, so on and so forth. And we, Donna, we have a little experience with that. So I was, I was giving some advice, if you will, about that. Now, there is a company over in Missouri, actually only a couple hours away from us. It's a company that makes deer blinds, and the company is called Redneck Blinds. So I, I typed in on this message forum, Redneck Blinds, and I typed in, we'll use a hay bale blind, we love it, it works great, and I hit click for that to post onto the forum, and the word redneck got bleeped out. I mean, it like squiggled it out or put little symbols in there because it could be offensive. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Is that the point that we've gotten to in our society that you can't even type redneck on a forum without it getting bleeped out? It was a few weeks ago that it was probably one of my most favorite Sundays to preach in a long time because I got to spend a whole morning talking about heaven. And when we, when we did that, obviously, if we're going to talk a lot about heaven, one of the main places we will go is the book of Revelation. And we looked at Revelation 21 and 22. And you might remember something about Revelation 21. I know that's a long time ago, all right? I'm, I'm asking you to look in the rearview mirror here just a little bit. But when we look there and you look at Revelation 21.1, there's something there that looks a little interesting because that whole chapter is about heaven and about what is to come for the people of God. And in that first verse, it says this, there in heaven, there will be no sea. We talked about that. It's like, I mean, does God just, does God not like water? Does he not like oceans or something? And the point that we made is this, especially in that day and in that time, seas divided people. They did. And in heaven, there will be no division. You know, it seems, now it might not necessarily be the case, but it seems like figuratively speaking, using sea in that way, the divide between people, it seems like the sea has gotten bigger and more treacherous. I'll tell you what, you go to a search engine on your computer, on a form, I mean, not a form, just a search engine, and you type in these initials, C-R-T, and just see what pops up, and all the differences of opinions that you will find about that. Oh, my goodness. A people divided. Really, that is what racism is. It's division amongst people. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, it's nothing new. It's been going on a long, long time. 
People can divide over just about everything. Race, nationality, beliefs, cultures, religion. How about this one? A choice of who you're going to cheer for when it comes to college sports. That OU in Texas, can you believe what those guys have done? you got to be kidding me, all right? I mean, seriously, we can, we can divide over basically everything you can imagine. We meaning us as people. A call to unity is not a call to total, total tolerant. I knew I was going to mess that up. Total, totalitarianism. And basically what that is, is this, forcing people to fall in line. Like say, this is how you're going to be and being forced to do that. That's not, that is not the end all of race. As a matter of fact, life would be really, really boring without differences amongst people and differences of opinion. A real call of unity is based upon and will only find success when love is the driving motivation. Only. We're going to turn back the clock a long ways, guys, as we look to this today. You brought your Bibles with you. I hope you did. When I read from it today and what will be behind me will come from the New American Standard. Um, If that's not what you have, that's fine. I just want to make sure you're aware of it. We're going to go to one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. There's major and minor prophets. They're all important. It's not like some are less important than others. But what we have in length is called the major prophets and the shorter one, the minors. The minor prophet today is the prophet Jonah, if you want to turn there. The prophet Jonah. If you see, it's, it's, it's a little over halfway through my Bible. If you're not sure exactly where that's at, and it's not an easy one to find, if you're not sure right where that's at, just look in your table of contents and it will put you in the right place. The book of Jonah. Now I've got to set this up for you a little bit. The book of Jonah was written about 2,700 years ago. The nation of Israel at this time was under the rule of a guy by the name of Jeroboam II. He wasn't the first king named Jeroboam. He was the second one named Jeroboam. And his reign was successful. He was a smart. Most most of the reigns of the kings did not last very long at that time, especially in Israel. But his lasted excess of 40 years. The guy was, was a powerful king. He was a smart king. And he grew the kingdom at the time. The kingdom for a while was prosperous. Leading up to that time, it had not been. There is one thing that he did not successfully do. He didn't even try. And that was lead the nation of Israel back to God. He did not even attempt to do that. But he was successful, okay? As I said, he won battles. He expanded the kingdom. And Israel, under his leadership, was getting a little bit cocky because Israel had been under harsh times leading up to that. And now they're like, oh, man, King Jeroboam's good. And, but what they saw even beyond that is this. God must be behind us. For us to be doing this well, then God must be sending his blessing upon us and we are doing well. And they were getting cocky and they were no longer afraid of that nation off to the northeast that was named Assyria. A little bit more about them here in just a second. There was a prophet in Israel at the time. His name was Jonah. Jonah was a bold prophet. He was a popular prophet in Israel. You know why he was popular? Because he prophesied that under the reign of Jeroboam, Israel would prosper. I mean, when you're prophesying something, and a prophet is merely a messenger of God, and when you're prophesying something that's good, and it comes true, I mean, people like that. So he was a very popular prophet in Israel at the time. 
Now back to Assyria. Assyria had Assyria had, had some setbacks. This is, a, this is a worldwide power. It had been, but they had suffered some defeats. They had had some difficulties themselves. But during this same time, Assyria's power was beginning once again to grow. And their expansion was happening. The nation of Israel, and more specifically the prophet in the nation of Israel at the time, Jonah, would remember the wickedness and the brutality of Assyria. They had conquered people already. They had risen to power, fallen back a little bit, but their power was regaining. And when they won in battle, these are the sorts of things that, that the nation of Assyria would do. When they won in battle and they conquered a nation, they would take the nobles of that nation and they would fillet them. They'd skin them alive. And then they would drape the skin over the still alive bodies. Once the job was done. That's what they would do with the nobles. They would take the enemy soldiers that had been captured. They would cut off their nose, cut off their ears, gouge out their eyes before executing them. Because just executing them wasn't enough. If that doesn't sound like enough, that is the nobles and the soldiers. What do you think they did with the civilians of a nation that they would conquer? They would tie them up with rope, lead them back to the capital of Nineveh, Remember that, to be sold as slaves. But they wouldn't do it like you might normally think. When you think of, you know, putting ropes on people and bringing them somewhere, you think, you know, tying them hand to hand or something. I mean, if you're really going to be cruel, tie them, you know, around the neck or something, those lines. No, they didn't choose any of those. They took fish hooks and put them in the lower lips of the people and then tied them together with line. And that's how they took them back to Nineveh to be sold as slaves. This is the people we are talking about. And Israel and Jonah hated them. On top of all of that, Jonah wasn't the only prophet in Israel at the time. There were a couple of others. Their names were Amos and Hosea. You can also read about them in the Minor Prophets, all right? Amos and Hosea. Amos specifically had prophesied something else. Also the word of the Lord. They prophesied this, a nation from the northeast would come and conquer Israel if they did not they did not turn back to God it would happen and Jonah had heard these prophecies of Amos we have the benefit of the hindsight of 2020 and yes a good number of decades later that's exactly what would happen Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. So all that being said, let's jump into our story. Jonah chapter one, beginning with verse one and two. And here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. I don't know if I can accurately, if we can accurately relate to the place that Jonah was and to what he felt when he was given this command by God. You have to understand something here. What Jonah felt, the hatred he felt for Nineveh was, was bigger than the result of a personal hurt. 
This was Jonah being told by God to help someone, to love someone who is your enemy, not from a position of power, but from a position of vulnerability. What I mean is this. It's one thing to love your enemy when you're more powerful than them, when there's no threat of them ever conquering you, and you can look down your nose at them while you love them. It's something entirely different to love your enemy when they are rising in power, and it's been told by a prophet of God that they're going to conquer your people one day. And they're going to enslave them one day. That's called loving from a position of vulnerability. Jonah knew Assyria would one day come and conquer his people and the level of brutality that would be afflicted upon them would be extreme. There is no doubt about it. Jonah hated Nineveh. When Jonah ran from the command of God and tried to run from God himself, as foolish as that is, it wasn't because he was frightened. It's because he hated the people he was told to help. So what did Jonah do? He ran. Jonah ran. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose rose up to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish. Well, let's say that one a few times in a row. From the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now understand something. Job is in Israel. The nation borders the the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Where Job is at, he is, now pay no attention to the directions I'm pointing to here, because I'll probably get it backwards, and that's north and south, and I'm not going to turn sideways. All right, so he's supposed to go this way. That's Nineveh, to the north, basically to the east, east, northeast. That's where he's supposed to go, about 500 miles away. He's supposed to start heading that way. Instead, he turns the opposite direction and goes to Joppa, boards a ship, and he sets sail to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was located on today what would be known as the coast of Spain. 2,500 miles away. You know how far that is? Have you ever thought about that? If you were to start in Miami, Florida, and shoot right past Los Angeles and go about 160 miles into the Pacific Ocean, you would find yourself 2,500 miles away from Miami, Florida. That's pretty far. He heads the opposite direction just about as far as he can possibly go, trying to run away from God. Does running from God work? So Job ran, and after this, Job was eaten. (laughs) He was eaten. Let's get into this just a little bit. Verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Now we got to set this up just a little bit. I've skipped a lot of chapter one there. We're going to skip a lot because we've got to go through. I preached through Jonah about eight years ago, and we did it in four weeks. We're trying to do the same thing in one Sunday here, all right? So bear with me. Jonah got aboard the ship. I'm going to make it really quick. They start heading west. The opposite direction which Jonah's supposed to go. A great storm assaulted the ship. It was God who was doing this. The sailors realized this. Something was going on. They're superstitious people. Okay, they drew lots. The lot fell to Jonah. They say, what have you done? He said, ah, I'm just trying to run from the creator of everything in this world. And they're like, you idiot. Why are you doing that? 
okay? So, and then Jonah says, the only way this storm's gonna stop, you gotta throw me into the water. This is Mediterranean Sea. This is not swimming across your bathtub, all right? This is death. So they don't wanna do it. So they try to, they try to do everything they can. So they don't wanna throw him into the sea. Not so much because they cared so much about Jonah, but because they were afraid if they threw him to the sea, this God who's put this storm upon them, who created everything and upholds everything, yeah, what are they, what's he gonna do to us when we throw a servant into the ocean or into the sea here? He says, look, you're gonna die if you don't do this. So they do so. They throw him to the sea. And I'll tell you what, before the fish even shows up, there's something even more amazing to me that happens. So look at verse 16. Verse 15 tells us they put Jonah into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. In verse 16 it says, then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You have pagan sailors here from the other side of the world and they're offering sacrifice and vows to the one God because they see the majesty of his power. That's pretty awesome. Now, Get back to Jonah. They throw him into the sea. He sinks to the bottom. You can look at chapter two sometime if you want. It's about his prayer. Um, we're gonna kind of skip through that. But the prayer makes it very clear that Jonah, like, th- he thinks he's, he's a goner. He's dead. He sinks into the sea like he's got seaweed wrapping up all in my, I mean, he's bad, it's bad news. He's, he's gonna die here, all right? And then this fish comes and swallows him. Good-sized fish. I haven't ever cleaned a fish that big, I don't think, but I've cleaned some pretty good-sized ones. And I've, I've, I should say this. I'm not very good at cleaning fish, and my wife is much better at it, so I let her do it. Um, I'm serious. She's really good with a knife. So anyway, but I've seen the biggest fish I think she's ever, she's ever cleaned was about a, was about a 35 pound flathead. And, and so that's a pretty good sized fish. And the stomach in a fish that size is not that big. All right. We've opened up those stomachs before just to see my wife. She's, she's she's like, she dissects stuff. It's so weird. And, and so just to see, well, what's it eating? So let's see. Uh, Have you ever cut open a fish stomach? It's not a place you'd want to spend much time. Just let me tell you that, all right? We have this thought of, of like Ahab and the whale or whatever, or Pinocchio, whatever you want to see it, and they're just like, they're just like sitting in this big cavern, you know. That's not what fish stomachs look like, I don't think, all right? Jonah gets swallowed by a fish, and he spends three days in that fish, and from that fish, he prays. And the only thing that kept him alive is God. You look at the end of chapter two, you see that, <laughs> I love the way it says. After Jonah's prayer and after three days, it says the fish vomited Jonah up onto land. Blech. I mean, it just sound great. Wouldn't that be something worth talking about? You ever been thrown up by a fish? And then guess what he does? He heads east. <laughs> Realizing running from God is not something that works. So fast forward a little bit. It takes a while to get 500 miles. But scripture fast forwards, so we'll do the same. Look at chapter three. Jonah finds himself in Nineveh. And this is what we find in Nineveh in verse four. First of all, Nineveh is a three days walk. I'm not talking about to get to Nineveh. I'm talking about within the city limits. This is a big city. It's a big place. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk, that verse three. Now look at verse four. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk 
And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, there's a couple things that jump out to me in this verse. First of all, Nineveh is a three days walk. He's only gone through part of the city. Now, I don't know if that means he stops at that point. And he, he's like, okay, I'll do it for one day, but that's all I'm going to do. I don't know if it means that the people just responded to what he said so quickly and word very quickly got to the king. Let me tell you something, guys. What Jonah does here, let's, let's count the words of the New American Standard. I'm going to count them. Yet, one, 42 days, three, and, we'll count and, four, Nineveh, five, will, six, be, Seven, overthrown, eight. An eight-word sermon. I know what you're thinking. Preacher, take some, take some lesson from Jonah. We'd be out of here fast. An eight-word sermon. It might be the most successful sermon ever preached, not in only the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. An eight-word sermon. I don't even see the word repent in there. He just says, you're gonna die. God is going to take you out. And look at the result of this sermon, beginning in verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. Man and beast. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And look what he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we may not perish In verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. These people didn't just put on sackcloth and cry about their future. They changed. The biblical term for that is they repented. Jonah preached an eight-word sermon and an entire city, a capital city, we'll get in a little bit, exactly how many people we're talking about here, repented. You talk about an altar call, people. Goodness, gracious, most successful sermon in the Bible. This is a lot of people. So is Jonah happy about it? Nope. Jonah pouted. (laughs) Jonah pouted. I want to look at verse 2 of chapter 4, but, but forget about the first part of that verse. Just look at the second part of that verse, all right? I've got it underlined in my Bible. And, and this is what it says. We get here the reasoning why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, why he tried to go to Tarshish, why he ended up getting swallowed by a fish, why he ran from God. We see why. This is what he says. And man, guys, this sounds, this sounds pretty powerful to me. I mean, this sounds like a good thing about God. 
Jonah praying to God says this, talking to God says this, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Would you call that a complaint? I mean, seriously, let's think about this. Oh man, God, I got something wrong with you. I got, I got a complaint for you. This is my complaint. I know that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning a calamity. How dare you? I mean, seriously. That is not a complaint. That is praise. That's a grateful heart saying. That's what we're going to do in communion here in just a little while, guys. We're going to thank God for his patience with us. For his desire to see people saved. And Noah's complaining. Saying, that's why I didn't want to come here. I hate these people. And I knew, I knew that if they listened to what I told them, that you would relent and they need to die. If they don't die, then my people are going to suffer. Jonah still had a little hope for devastation, though. Maybe he's thinking, well, hopefully this isn't real. Hopefully this is just an act. So he sticks around a few days. He camps out up above Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, where he can kind of see what is going to happen next. It's quite an interesting story when you look to chapter 4, what comes, a, a plant grows up over the top of him, big old worm comes and eats the plant. Jonah gets all upset about it. Nineveh doesn't get destroyed. And Jonah is still pouting. And this is really, really interesting. Look at verse 11. Jonah and God having another conversation. God told Jonah, he said, this plant... I mean, it is hot. We, we understand that, right? You remember this past week, okay? And Jonah's out there trying to watch the fireworks, which aren't going to come. He wants to see the fireworks show, and, and he's sitting there. It's hot. He's baking in the sun, all right? And then overnight, this plant grows up over the top of him, gives him some shade, and he's like, oh, man, this is wonderful. This is great. I love it. Um, and then a worm comes and eats it, <laughs> and he's all upset about it, and God says, you care about more that plant than the people of Nineveh. This is stupid, Jonah. This makes no sense. This is what he says. Verse 11. Last verse. I mean, the book of Jonah just ends weird. We don't really get what happens next. God says to Jonah, I sh should I have not had compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Who doesn't know the difference between their right and left hand? Children. I just saw one raise their hands at me. Children. In other words, Jonah, there are 120,000 children in this city who've done nothing wrong. They are innocent. They would have been swept up in the destruction. And you're more concerned about this stupid plant that I grew over you than you are those people. Not to mention the cattle. That's kind of weird, but God likes cows, I guess. Okay, all right. But think about this. How many people do you have to have to have 120,000 little kiddos? 
Most estimates are well over half a million. So we're talking about an incredible number of people saved. And Jonah was responsible, reluctantly responsible for the salvation of over a half million people. Now, it's God who saved them right, but God worked through the words of Jonah. And Jonah's upset about it. Folks, it's a privilege to preach God's word to people. I have a feeling that the number of people that I get the privilege of preaching to and seeing them turn their lives over to Jesus is probably going to fall. Now, you never know, but I'm pretty sure it's going to fall a little way shy of over a half million. That's what Jonah did. And he's upset about it. Why? Because Jonah was a racist. (laughs) He hated those people. Did they deserve to be hated? I don't know. Jonah thought so. People of Israel thought so. You see, the account of Jonah, it isn't the end of the racism of people recorded in Scripture. That's not like the whole story and it's over and done with. Matter of fact, it was still going on a little over 500 years later. David got up here last week, preached a whale of a sermon. Okay, Jonah didn't get swallowed by a whale. It was a fish, but I just had to throw it out there. All right, so he preached a sermon about the Holy Spirit. And he did a good job. And one of the main places he went to in that sermon was Acts 2.38. Because in Acts chapter 2, what we find is the very, very first time the gospel is ever preached. The gospel is very simply a message about Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again because he's God. And by the power of that fact, people can be saved still 2,000 years later. That's the gospel. And the very first gospel sermon ever preached was preached by Peter and the rest of the disciples after the Holy Spirit came down upon them. They're preaching that message. They're talking to the people, many of them who had been in the crowd, probably yelling, crucify him, just weeks earlier when Jesus died on a cross. And Peter and the rest of the disciples tell that crowd, be saved. Be saved from this crooked generation. Be saved. The guy that you put on that cross is God. The people were cut to the heart and they responded and said, what do we do? It has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit and the response that Peter gave them. Very first, God, very first time the gospel's ever preached. So probably the way in which Peter responds is pretty important. He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what David pointed out last week is this connection between the Holy Spirit and baptism. But Acts doesn't end in chapter 2. And when I continue on through, because Acts is the history book of the New Testament. 
And when I continue on through it, I see some things that look a little confusing to me after Acts 2.38. First time the gospel's ever preached because that's where I want to go to when it comes to how to respond to the message about Jesus. But then you get to Acts chapter 8 and you get to Acts chapter 10 and you see something happen a little bit differently. In Acts chapter 8, what takes place is this. A guy named Philip, who's a deacon within the church, is preaching Jesus, the first one to do it. Philip was a brave, compassionate, loving guy because you know where he decided to go preach Jesus? To the Samaritans. Philip was a Jew. Jesus and Samaritans don't get along. Talk about racism. Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along at all. Philip says, they need Jesus. And he goes and preaches to them. And it's crazy when we see what happens. When you see what happens there, Philip goes and preaches to them. They receive the message. Philip is tremendously excited. Peter and the rest of the apostles hear about it. Like, well, that Philip guy went to the Samaritans? what do you know why didn't we think of that they're like well we better go up there and see what's going on so Peter goes up there and sees them and guess what happens the Holy Spirit falls on them after they were baptized it's like whoa 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 wait a second that's not the way it happened in Acts chapter 2 and then you get that's Acts chapter 8 then you get to Acts chapter 10 and something else happens Peter, with some prodding from God, preaches the very first gospel sermon to guess who? The Gentiles, the Gentile. That's us, by the way. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, okay? Understand something. The Jews had always been God's chosen people. They're God's, nobody else. That's what they had in their mind. Even though the Bible doesn't teach that, that's what they had in their minds, So this is a big deal when Peter goes to the Gentiles, specifically a guy by the name of Cornelius, to preach the gospel to them. And guess what happens in Acts chapter 10? The Holy Spirit falls upon those listening to Peter's sermon. The Gentiles listen to Peter's sermon before they're baptized. It's like, what gifts? I mean, seriously, we've got an Acts. Peter tells us how to do this thing and how the Holy Spirit is, has a very strong connection to baptism. So why in Acts 8 does the Holy Spirit come after baptism? And why in Acts 10 does the Holy Spirit come before baptism? What is the point? And the question is not why. The question is who. The answer to the question is who. As I've already told you, in Acts chapter 8, it's Samaritans. The Jews didn't like them. And God said, I don't care if you don't like them. I love them. And they need my saving grace. So you got that in Acts 8. You get to Acts 10, Gentiles. This is even a bigger deal. Because to the Jew, the Samaritan was a half-breed. But at least they were part Jew. Gentiles, bupskis. All right? They got no Jew in them at all. They got nothing. They are not God's people. But God says something different. Matter of fact, it's summed up quite well by Peter. Why don't you turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 47. And there's only one verse I'm going to read there. So you don't have to do it, but if you'd like to see it yourself, it's very, very important. 
And Peter again says something somewhat similar in Acts chapter 11, but we're going to focus on Acts chapter 10 because it's in the moment. Peter is preaching the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, and while he is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And in verse 47, we see what Peter said. Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? People try to make Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 8 about baptism, and it has nothing to do with that. They try to say, well, maybe baptism isn't very important because the Holy Spirit can be given without baptism. I and mean, when we see it in Scripture, that's not what's taking place in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10. What's taking place in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 is God taking his big stamp of approval and putting them on the Gentiles and the Samaritans, saying to his Jewish people, they are mine too. So you better get your mind wrapped around that. And for us in this room, who are probably all Gentiles, we say amen, hallelujah. Why did God have to do this? Because racism was still a thing. And the Jews wanted to take God and keep them. His people alone. What do we do about racism? How do we combat it today so many years later? The law of God, there's a reason why we still have this and within it is contained salvation, yes, the guide to salvation, but also the guide to the law. The law, the law is not our salvation. We can't find salvation in the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We find salvation in Christ. But the law is still there. Jesus himself said, the law is not going anywhere. Nobody's taking the smallest little part of it out. It will remain. The law is here for a reason. It's a guide for us in how to live. How we live life. And the law's kind of complicated, so I'm glad Jesus summed it up for us. You know, Jesus was asked, what is the law? What's the most important part about the law? This is shortly before he went to the cross. This is what Jesus said in his reply. He said this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of law is wrapped up in these two things. Brothers and sisters in heaven, the sea will be gone. Not literally, I don't think. I think there will be, I mean, I'm told, like I told you a few weeks ago, if you want to go to the beach in heaven, I think you're going to be able to, all right? Okay. But the division will be gone. There will be nothing in heaven to divide us as people. But that is heaven. We aren't there yet. So what do we do as Christians in a world that is divided? 
It's not complicated. Love God and love people. I love how Phil Robertson puts it. He said, I'd like to see somebody else who thinks they got a better plan than that. Love God and love people. What would happen to racism in our world if everybody did that? If everyone loved God and loved people. Let me tell you something. As much as we'd like to see it happen, it's not going to in the world. Racism will exist until Jesus comes back. Division will exist until this world is ended and renewed. But here's the question. What about the church? What about the body of Christ? How well are we loving God and loving people? You want to be different than what you see in the world? You want to be different? You want to look like Jesus? That's what we're told to do, look like Jesus. It's not complicated, as I already told you. Love people, whether they deserve it or not. Love them. There is no way to live more differently in this world than that. John 3.16, more specifically, 1 John 3.16. Remember I told you two weeks ago, remember this sermon in two weeks? We spent the whole Sunday morning talking about love. We know John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, near the end of our New Testament, looks a little different. This is what it says. We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid his life down for us. We ought to lay our lives down for our brethren. I know what that looks like if you don't see what follows it. It looks like what he's saying is we should be willing to die for others because of our love for them. Maybe so, but I don't think the Apostle John was talking about dying because the next two verses talk about living. It says this, if you see someone in need and you don't help them, how are you showing the love of God? How does the love of God exist in you? He says, don't just love with words. Love by what you do. 